Good morning. I hope you enjoyed the throwback to the 1980s with Keith Green's song. Um, and it puts you in the mood, gets you in the scene for the, the story that I, or the stories that we're going to explore today. I'm going to start with the Old Testament, I, where we learned about snakes coming into the camp. Now, I don't like snakes. Not one little bit. My dislike started with worms, wiggly, little, unpredictable, ugly things that my younger brother would chase me with. Actually, he would have a whole handful. I could imagine them getting caught in my hair, or worse, falling inside a gap in my clothing. My hatred of wiggly things grew with tomato worms, overstuffed, green, prickly, thumb-sized grossiosities that my same brother would lay on the uh, driveway so that he could ride over them with his bicycle, spraying their green guts like fireworks. But none of this compares to the few weeks that I spent at Camp Andrews between my junior and senior year of college. I was supposed to be preparing for a cross-cultural experience with the Eastern Mennonite Mission Summer Service Training Program. Now, the camp at that time was in disrepair, so part of our service training was to help fix the camp, which just happened to be infested with black snakes. Skinny black snakes, fat black snakes, snakes as long as telephone poles, anaconda-sized black snakes, at least that's what it seemed. They could be anywhere and everywhere. Thankfully, I was not on the crew that cleaned up an overgrown patch of weeds one day that was so thick with snakes, they had to call off the cleanup. But I was in chapel the next morning, already anxious and on the edge with all the snakes around, when the camp director decided to interrupt our worship to show us the biggest black snake he had ever seen in all his life. I think I had my first panic attack that day. I left chapel, ran back past the stump where a snake had been lounging the day before, and climbed into my high bunk. I shook, and I cried, and I prayed for quite a while. So, when I read about God sending poisonous snakes among the children of Israel, as it says in the Numbers passage that we heard this morning, my heart is totally with the people. I can imagine their panic must have far exceeded mine. Not only did they need to deal with slithery, unpredictable creatures when they squatted in the sand, but they were seeing people die from snake bites. Now, I knew this story was going to be unpleasant to work with as, as, um, as soon as I read it, just because of the snakes. But the harder part for me to deal with in this story is God's role. After reading it, I wondered, what am I supposed to believe about God? What about God, um, what about the God that I see in this passage can I trust? So let's look at the past story again. If I take the narrative the way it's written, the children of Israel are grumbling. Just like you heard in the song earlier. What? Manna again? They weren't even complaining about not having food. They were complaining about how detestable manna was. And this wasn't their first episode of mass grumbling. They were seasoned grumblers. Now, being an award-winning grumbler myself, I wondered what made grumbling so bad 
that God would punish his favorite people with poisonous snakes. So after reading a few times, I think I figured it out. To grumble was a symptom of a deeper problem. It was a sign of their unbelief in God. You see, God had told these same grumblers that they were his chosen people and that he would make them a holy nation and that he would defend Israel against her enemies and that God would be merciful, gracious, and forgiving. He brought them out of slavery with dramatic flair. He spouted water from rocks several times for the whole bunch of them to drink. He gave them food from the sky, and he provided pillars of fire and a cloud to guide them. If God was trying to show them how capable he was of keeping his promises, he had made his point. But like most of us, the children of Israel looked at what was right in front of them, and in their case, sand. They didn't see where the next supply of water was coming from. They were people on the move, but they didn't know where they were going beyond that day. They were always at risk of being under attack, and they were always at risk of being attacked. I'm guessing that in spite of God's curriculum vitae, they felt like life was uncertain and insecure. Perhaps they were remembering the 400 years that God had left them in slavery and feared he would allow them to suffer again. It's harder than it sounds to just trust God to provide your daily needs and obey God's commandments. And just like you and me, they couldn't do it. So here is where the passage gets messy for me. The children of Israel were serving a God who from the beginning of creation wanted a close relationship with the people that he made. And if people then are like people now, God seems to have created us with a desire for a close connection with God. In my experience anyway, when God and I aren't talking, I have no sense of wholeness. But why would I want to draw close to God who sends me poisonous snakes? For any reason. The answer that I read in this passage seems rather untenable. God sent poisonous snakes to punish the grumbling unbelievers, first of all, but ultimately to make them turn to him and ask for help. Or we could phrase the rationale another way. God sent poisonous snakes to show his people yet again that they could trust him to save them. Now, if you doubt this reasoning, look at Psalm 78. Don't really look at it. I'm going to tell you what it says. This is not the psalm that we read this morning, but it is one that reviews the history of the children of Israel and all the ways God provided all the way and all the ways God provided and all of the ways that the children of Israel did not trust and all of the ways that God punished them. And in verses 32 to 34 it says, in spite of all this punishment, they kept on sinning. In spite of his wonders, they did not believe. So he ended their days in futility and their years in terror. Whenever God slew them, they would seek him. And then they eagerly turned to him. God killed them, and then the rest of them turned to God. Now, in this story, that's exactly what the children of Israel did. They went to Moses, admitted their unbelief and distrust, and asked Moses to intercede for them. 
Moses complied, and God told Moses to put a bronze snake on a pole so that anyone who got bitten would look up at the bronze snake and be healed. Yet again, God's people turned to God, believing that he could save them. So do you see why I struggle with the God in this passage? Can a God who saves also be a God who punishes, even kills? Can a God who loves his children manipulate them into trusting him? Does God punish people for not being faithful enough, for not believing or trusting enough? Now, trust me when I say that I spent hours spinning my wheels as I tried to sort through the possible answers for me and for you. Mostly it just made my head hurt. But here is a brief synopsis of choices this passage gives us to believe about God. Choice one, God is cruel and harsh and he has unrealistic expectations for his people's ability to follow him. That's one thing I could believe after reading that. Belief number two, possibility number two. God loves us so much that he will use any means possible, even things he knows will hurt us, to help us believe and trust in his ability to save us in this life and the next. Don't like that one? Try number three. God's ways of doing things are superior to ours, are so superior to ours that we have no choice but to trust in his sovereignty and wisdom and perfection, even when it's not logical to us. Hmm, You might not like that one either. Number four, maybe this passage is all about Moses' perspective and it doesn't have anything at all to do with with what God really thinks. Five, Maybe God didn't really send the snakes at all. Maybe the caravan of camels and sheep and goats and tens of thousands of people disturbed a snake convention. The reptiles got irritated and began biting people. So God said, hey, I can use this as an opportunity, delivered up by my evil nemesis, Satan, to remind my wayward people that I can save them and I love them and I long for them to stay close to me. Choice number six, God really, really, really wants us to believe in his ability to forgive us and to save us from sin and any other problem we have. Choice number seven, God really, really would like us to stay connected every day, trusting in his mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Now, if you happen to notice my sermon title of Paradoxes and Snakes and Beliefs, you may have been wondering where paradoxes come into play. Here we go. Paradoxes can be a situation, a person, or a thing that combines contradictory features or quality. Often, paradoxes can be resolved, even though they look quite contradictory, into something that surprises you, makes sense. I submit to you that this list of beliefs is a paradox. So what, you ask? A few months ago, my therapist, who is a former Mennonite brethren pastor, congratulated me for entering into a new level of spiritual maturity. 
I just looked at him like he had lost his mind because he had, I had just explained to him how I had decided to try pu- to publish some essays that I had written about my dad that dad would have found rather humiliating. And I wasn't asking God what he thought about that decision. I might as well have raised my middle finger to God, I told my therapist, because I made a conscious choice to not ask and not listen. I crossed my arms and turned my back. Wow, you really trust God, he said. Say what? As I understand his comment, he was suggesting that my actions indicated my unconscious trust that God would somehow understand all my thought processes, my history, my pain and emotion that led me to make that decision and take me back when I was ready. I somehow believed that even though I was experi- I somehow believed that even though I was experiencing significant panic at night, fearing God's punishment for my actions. So on one hand, I'm He's, he was suggesting that I'm subconsciously trusting God in this process. On the other hand, I am freaking out at night because I think God's going to punish me for making such a bold, conscious decision to do what I wanted and not even consult God. On a topic that felt to me fundamentally more like a moral, ethical, spiritual question. So that conversation led us on to paradoxes, which he believes is an indicator of spiritual maturity. For example, my counselor said, people doubt God's existence, but they pray to him anyway. Here's another example. People could describe Jesus as demanding, compassionate, condescending, angry, righteous, kind, Impatient, jealous, and loving. Wouldn't it be so much easier to just define God's character with a single trait, loving, for example, or kind, one of those nice words, than it is to consider that all of those seemingly contradictory traits might be true of God, might be true of, are true of Jesus. That same concept applies to the conflicting beliefs I could hold about God with the numbers passage. Maybe God does punish. Maybe God causes evil to stir us to fervency. Or maybe he just uses it. Maybe God is cruel, according to our human definitions. Maybe this whole account is Moses' perspective and not God's perspective. Maybe we just don't understand God's ways. I picture holding these contradictory and perhaps revolting ideas On one banquet hall serving tray, those of you that used to serve banquets, you know what I'm talking about, the big trays, all right? Um, The tray itself is the belief that I find most foundational, that God really, really wants me to believe that he forgives and offers salvation in in my life right now and forever. Then I'm going to line that tray with another foundational belief that God wants me to trust in him completely. And then the rest of all of those other ideas will sit on top. And I am going to walk into my journey with God holding all of these possibilities on the tray, not knowing which one it is, 
I have suspicions, maybe I have ideas, I have leanings, but not really knowing. But I'm going to walk forward with God, holding all of these possible paradoxical ideas on one tray. And if my counselor is right, that's a sign of spiritual maturity. Woohoo! Don't you feel wise? Anyway, when I look at the New Testament passage this morning, when I looked at the New Testament passage this morning, my belief that God's desire for us to trust in his saving power is reinforced. The verses say, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Did you hear the word believes in connection with eternal life? And the next verse too, Jesus says that famous verse, we can all say it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Should not perish, but have eternal life. I think only of the word belief when I hear that. And I tend to think of belief as an intellectual exercise. With that in mind, belief could be a relatively easy check-the-box approach. I have found myself saying, "Um, sure, I believe Jesus is the Son of God and that he has the ability to save me from my sins. Check the box. Eternal life guaranteed. Moving on. But I think the numbers passage pushes us to look further than the checkbox. So I ask myself, what does it mean for me to really live into my belief in God as Savior? For someone who likes to be independent and solve my own problems, this is not easy for me. I'd prefer to save God the trouble. But as I worked on this sermon, I've also realized that belief is expressed by coming to God for help. So for the first time in a long time the other night, I seriously prayed for some friends of mine whose relationship is about to implode. I found I had to remind God and myself that he wants us to rely on him to save us. Because I have trouble trusting that he'll actually do anything. And about those essays, with Pastor Samantha's help, I was able to return to God's presence and lay those essays out at God's feet and ask him to show me what to do with them. And I haven't panicked at night since then, at least not about that. One of the passages from the lectionary that we didn't read this morning is a good place to end this morning's exploration. The Apostle Paul reminds us that belief and faith are not just efforts we generate on our own, but that God's grace lifts us beyond ourselves. Ephesians 2, 4 to 10, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raises us up with Christ and seats us with him in the heavenly realms in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he may show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, 
not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Uh-huh.